Helena, Montana, is a town of about 30,000 people in the whitest state in this country. It's covered in snow throughout much of the year, and it's full of Caucasians. African Americans represent less than half of 1% of the population in the state. And in Helena, the total number of African Americans is 159 people. One of them is the mayor. He hails from West Africa, and he belongs to the less than 2% of the people in Helena who were born outside this country. Two years ago this week, I went to visit Wilmot Collins. Very nice to meet you. Getting all the snow off my... Ah, thank you. I wanted to know more about his story. I grew up in Liberia, and um, my parents worked for Firestone, Firestone Plantation Company. I'm sure you've seen the Firestone tires and B of Goodrich tires. Those materials come from Liberia. We have the rubber trees. We tap the rubber, and then we ship the raw material here, and you make the tires. So my parents work for the company. We didn't have to struggle for anything. On the weekends, we traveled different cities playing baseball because um, I was on the, our baseball team, me and my brothers. And weekends, we weren't playing baseball. My parents had a poultry farm. We went selling chickens, and we'd go from town to town. So, um, yeah, things were great. In the sixth grade, Wilmot went off to a Catholic boarding school where he stayed through high school. During his senior year, there was a coup in Liberia. The president was killed and the military took over. Wilmot eventually became a political science major at the University of Liberia in the capital city of Monrovia, where he became politically active and joined the student integration movement in opposition to the military government. But he was also busy doing all the other kinds of things university students are preoccupied with, like looking for love. She was talking to my sister at the bus stop, and I went over to my sister and told her, hey, you need to introduce me to your friend. And she said, no, 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 she is too decent for you. Were well, you a little bit of a ladies' man or something? I'm not, I cannot confirm, no, deny. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I was in college, you know. And uh, when the bus came, I was already on my campus. I decided to jump on the bus with her. I sat next to her. And I drove on that bus for 25 miles to her campus. And I introduced myself to her, and she introduced herself. She was pretty shy. I wanted to know everything about her. She wouldn't tell me anything. And so I used to go to the bus stop every time on that, at the same time to meet with her and talk to her. And after about two years, she finally agreed to <laughs> date me. And then uh, when she was graduating in 1989, we got engaged. And then um, the war happened, the Civil War. December 24th, 1989. By this time, Wilmot had become less politically active. He'd graduated and was teaching at the SOS Children's Village, an international aid organization with chapters in most African countries. And he was settling into a nice, young, grown-up life with his wife-to-be when all hell broke loose in Liberia in a brutal civil war in which there were no good guys. When they hit the capital city, it was too late to get out. We had to be on the ground for a couple of days because stray bullets was flying through the house. 
if you're here, you know you're still alive. And then the soldiers came and said, if you're in there, get out, get out. They had a little quick ceasefire, get out and move forward. And so when we got out, the place was littered with dead bodies. We're jumping over bodies running. My mom, my brother, sister, my fiance, and we were left homeless, running for lives. Overnight, everything was ticking away. Everything was gone. I mean, people build their lives around retirement and this and that, and everything was gone. You had to be hyper alert all day long. They had these checkpoints, and depending on the questions to give you, how you answer them, that's how they determine who lived and who died. Like I remember we were at a checkpoint, and I recognized a friend of mine, Ben. And Ben came over to me and said, hey, if you're going through that checkpoint, he was one of the rebels. He said, you have to be very deliberate when you're taking your first step. So I said, why? He said, because they are looking for soldiers. And soldiers start marching left, right, left, right. And if you start with left foot, you're dead. So when it was my time and he called me, I was so deliberate with my right foot out. That's what saved me. I'll tell you something. Ben didn't tell this to everybody. So do you know how many people got killed because they started with left foot? Innocent people who were not part of the soldiers? People died because of that. And I'm talking about nine, ten-year-old guys with guns. Kids who we watched play marbles after they killed. They did not know the value of life. I lost two brothers. One was murdered by the soldiers and the other was beheaded by the rebels. We um, buried his head. That's the only part of the body we found. Lost two brothers during the war. Uh I lost an uncle too, my mom's brother. So, yeah. Everything was shut down, 100% shut down. No food, no stores, nothing. You were going around begging day in, day out. That's what we did. I still remember one time my wife and I were walking, looking for food. And we found a tube of Pepsodent toothpaste. Sucked on it and passed it to her. She sucked on it, passed it to me. I sucked on it until we consumed the toothpaste. We were just out in the element because we didn't have a place to live until um, a friend of my mom recognized her and said, well, I have a room in my house, but there's no bed or anything, but at least you'll be out of the element. So we took it. There was about six of us, seven of us, we were in a room. No beds. We were happy. So we lived there a few months. And then West African countries got together to send in a peacekeeping force because 
It was estimated in the first couple of months, three months of the war, 250,000 Liberians had died. And then um, the peacekeepers, when they came, they told Liberians, if you wanted to leave on board this ship to go to any one of the African countries where this ship going, you can go. And that night we all prayed about it. And we decided we had to leave. And we were determined to get on board that ship. And um, the next day was a Friday. We got up early to go to the port. And my mom decided, no, I'm not going. I said, what are you talking? She said, well, I prayed some more and the Lord isn't leading me. And I said, you got to be crazy. The Lord is leading you because he sent that ship. What more do you want from the Lord? And, you know, we try to argue back and forth because I want her to go with us. But she was stubborn. When we got to the port, the line to get on board the ship was over a mile long. And we were in the back. We stayed on line Friday. We stayed on line Saturday. We stayed on line Sunday, and it was estimated 10,000 people boarded that ship. Finally, Sunday at 9.47 p.m., they finally chose my wife to go, and they didn't choose me. But we were holding hands. We were determined not to be separated, and so she wouldn't move when he said, you go. And then we showed it to him, and then he said, okay, you, you, go. We got chosen to get on board the ship. And then I think about 10 other Liberians later, the door closed, and that was it. We got on board that ship, only standing room. It was another three days journey, and I thank God my mom was stubborn. Because the very next morning, we just heard a lot of crying, crying. People had died on the ship and they had to dump them overboard. All three mornings we heard wailing and crying and people dumping their loved ones overboard. That was pretty tough. And my mom at the time was not in the greatest health. And um, had she gone with us, I don't think she would have made the journey. I would not have lived with myself for that. When we were leaving Liberia, my mom gave my fiance and I, my wife now, $5 and said, go and God be with you. And so we left Liberia with $5. And when we got to Ghana, I told my wife, I said, hey, I need to go find the SOS Children's Village. That's where I used to teach. And I knew they had a branch in Ghana. And she gave me the five bucks and I stopped the cab. And I told the guy I was going to the SOS Children's Village. He knew where it was, and he took me to the village. But, you know, we had not showered or changed clothes or anything, and I was filthy. When I got there and introduced myself, he said, can you prove who you are? For the first time, I could not. I didn't have an ID. I couldn't say I was Wilmot Collins. I could not prove I was Walmart Collins. He said, well, some kids came on the first ship. If they can't identify you, I'll help you. 
I said, please send for them. I used to teach them. And he sent for them. And when the kids came, the saw men started crying. And I didn't understand why they were crying. I thought they would be happy. But then I went and looked in for the first time in six months. I went in the restroom and looked in the mirror. I was dying of starvation. I got on the scale. I was 90 pounds. 30 years old. Full grown man, 90 pounds. That's why they were crying. Because when they knew me, I was well built, 170 pounds, doing great, jovial, happy guy, happy-go-lucky guy. And that day they saw me, they could not believe what they saw. And they just broke down crying. We were a few days or a few weeks away from dying of starvation. And so they took us in. And because I used to teach, he put me back into school teaching. My wife was a medical student. He put her back into the clinic to work in the clinic. And um, it was okay, but that was not what we wanted. And my wife said, you know, let's go to America. I said, how? So my wife was an African exchange student. She lived in Helena. She had been in high school, right? Yes. She graduated from a local high school here, Helena High School. And she graduated, and she went back and went to the university, and that's how we met. But she was still in touch with the host family she had lived with. And so she called them, and they were more than willing to help, but they didn't know the process. And um, finally, they went to Carroll College right here in Helena. And they prevailed upon Carol, and Carol awarded her a scholarship to do nursing because she was in medical school. And they put me on as her dependent. But then we were married already. But when we went to the embassy for our visas, they told us only one of the two would go. So I said, okay, then you go. Since you have the scholarship, you go. And about two weeks before she were about to leave... She got sick, so I took her to the hospital. And the doctor comes out and said, congratulations, Mr. Collins, you'll soon be a proud father. I'm like freaking out, saying, no, 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 my wife is going to school. He said, well, she's also pregnant. Of course, that put a wrench in things because I, I didn't mind my wife going, but then going without child, I didn't know when I would see. And I tried to talk to her, saying, you know, I don't know. But she convinced me, saying, this is the best thing for us. So I said, okay. So she left August 19th, 91. She came, she entered college, she did great. In the meantime, the only way I could join was I had to register with the United Nations as a refugee. I had to go through all the processes, screening, vetting. And um, it wasn't easy. When people talk about the vetting process, that process works. I went through that process. Very detailed, very strict. 
After two years and seven months, I was allowed to join my family. February 17, 1994, I arrived. My wife left 91. I still remember when we were descending, coming in the plane, and the pilot got on the intercom and said, it's sunny and warm in Helena, Montana at 32 degrees. And I'm like freaking out. I know 32 degrees, water freezes, so how can it be warm at freezing? And I'm like, what the heck am I? Snow all over the place. When I entered the terminal, I was all these people waiting. And then this huge banner, welcome home, Wilmot, you know. And then I looked around for my daughter for the first time I saw her. And my wife put her down and said, there's daddy, go to daddy. And she started walking to me and I'm walking to her. And then she started running and I'm running and then grab her and I just hugged her. And that moment was, wow. It was pretty emotional, pretty emotional. And I totally forgot <laughs> my wife was even there and I had not seen her for years, but this was someone I had not seen her whole life. That was our first meeting and it was, wow, I was so happy. I didn't know what to do. We lived with her host family. So every morning while she going to school, I would come in town with our host dad and just walk around town. And this day I walked to the uh, Capitol building. And when I entered the Capitol, I saw the office of the governor on the left and the office of the secretary of state on the right. And I decided to go to the office of the governor to meet him. And I got there and I got stopped. And the lady asked me, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't. She said, would you like to make one? I said, sure. So I'm writing my name down and my address and everything. And this guy walks behind me and said, may I help you? I said, no, I'm here to see the governor. He said, well, I am the governor. My name is Mark Roscoe. What can I do for you? And I stopped. I said, oh, wow. I just came from Liberia. And I thought I should come and meet you. He says, what can I do for you? Come on in. And I walked right behind him, walked right in his office. Have a seat. I had my resume in the back of the pocket. I turned it to him. He looked at it. He pressed an intercom. He said, Pat, would you come in? So Pat came in and said, what can we do for Mr. Collins? And he handed my resume to Pat. And um, Pat looked it over and said, Anna Mountain's Children's Home is looking for a counselor from your resume. You've worked with kids. And then she said, go on the website, apply, and use me as a reference. And that's what makes Montana, Montana. We can do these things. Elsewhere, you can't. There would be no way any other state I would have been able to do that. But I was able to do everything in one day. Walk to the Capitol, put my name down, meet the governor, got a job, I mean, a job prospect. So uh, everything in one day. I had been here for two weeks. My third week was when I got my interview and got hired. And I never looked back since then. It 
it was very different. Snow was everywhere. I had never seen snow. The closest thing I came to snow was the frost in the fridge, you know, way back, the frost. And of course, I had never seen this many Caucasian people everywhere. I didn't see any black people. I still remember, you know, my kids, when we're driving and they see a black person, it was a black alert, dad, look on the left. And we'll look and then we're waving and, you know, we'll go to the farmer's market. If we were to see one person, you see us hugging and introducing ourselves, you know. But I'll tell you, the community was warm from day one. I mean, it was physically cold, but warm hearted people. And um, I just started falling in love with the place. And um, it was just a warm feeling to come in and see that people did care. There were some negatives, you know, when we moved from our host family house and we started renting a home, you know, we woke up with markings on our home, KKK, go back to Africa. And um, one of the neighbors woke us up and said, did you see the nasty thing written on your wall? And I said, no. She said, why don't you put some clothes on and come on out? So I went out and I saw it. I said, well, I have to call the police. And so when I left to go and call the police, that lady got together the neighborhood, got the neighborhood together and they washed my wall down. Now, you hear of racism everywhere in the world, but do you hear of results like that? Do you hear neighborhoods coming together to make you whole again? That's why I love this town. That's why I love this city. That's why I love this state, to have your neighbors do that for you, people who didn't know you. Because we had just moved in the neighborhood. We didn't know anybody. And for them to do that, I knew I was in the right town. I knew I was in the right state. And that's why we stayed. Because we could go, we could move anywhere. We were legal immigrants by this time. We could move anywhere. But we chose not to. Because of the reception we received. So we've lived here ever since. Our kids were born here. They were raised here. They love it here. And look at me. I'm the mayor today. Wilmot decided to run for office when the former mayor, who'd served four consecutive terms, announced that he was retiring. Later, the incumbent mayor changed his mind and did run again, making Wilmot's race tougher than he'd anticipated. But on November 7, 2017, he won the mayoral election in Helena by a single vote. He ran on a progressive platform, and granted Helena is one of the more liberal enclaves in the state, but still, the county had gone for Trump just one year earlier. Wilmot made affordable housing one of his key issues and teen homelessness another. I wanted to bring awareness. These people are part of our community. What are we doing? And they resonated with the voters and they voted me in. When I went to see Wilmot two years ago this week, he'd only just been inaugurated and was still learning the ins and outs of his city. Like this morning, I got out of here at 6 o'clock in the morning. I went with the snowplow drivers to see what to do. There you are in the truck, yeah. <laughs> in the picture. And it was an eye-opener. 
like cars park on the side of the road, you know. So I experienced the perspective the snowplow drivers face with residents parking on both sides of the street. Imagine that, this kid from Liberia who'd never seen snow. Now you have to be an expert on snow plowing. <laughs> yeah. The day I went to visit Wilmot Collins also happened to be the 24th anniversary of his arrival in Helena. That emotional day when he'd met his daughter for the first time. That makes him now a 26-year resident of the United States. And for more than two decades, Wilmot served his adopted country in the U.S. Navy Reserves. And both his kids, now grown, have served as well. And I'm happy to report that Wilmot's mom survived the Civil War in Liberia and eventually became an American citizen herself, living in Minnesota. But I guess it feels a little overly familiar to call him Wilmot, now that he holds such high elected office. So I guess I'll simply say, thank you for sharing your story, Mr. Mayor. If you enjoyed this story and you want to hear more stories like it, join me on Patreon for just a dollar. I have four different levels on Patreon, which give you different levels of access to new episodes and to our huge archive of stories. So check it out at patreon.com slash strangerspodcast. That's patreon.com slash strangerspodcast. It's the only money I'm making from this work right now, and I sure would appreciate your support if you can spare a buck and want to hear more work. If you have a story to tell or something to share from your life right now or from your life in the past, or perhaps just a comment, call 844-NO-STRANGER. That's 844-667-8726. Or email me a voice memo or just a regular old email to strangersradio at gmail.com. That address again is strangersradio at gmail.com. You can join our community on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangerspodcast. And I've just set up a new group there called Strangers Community. And it's wonderful. So come join us if you can. You can also follow me on Twitter, of course, at Leah Tao. Thanks to Paul Drew Smith for making the music and mixing this episode. You can find him at paul, D-R-E-U-X, smith.com. And thanks to my story advisor, Christina Thyssen, whom you can find at Christina, T-H-Y-S-S-E-N dot com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it's nice to be back. <laughs>